right, so today is April 12th, 2022, and uh, we're recording our Sociology Unmasked podcast at Southeastern Louisiana University in the Sociology and Criminal Justice Department. I am Dr. Rebecca Tepshorn. I'm an instructor of sociology here at Southeastern, and the guest with us today is Dr. Kenneth Bolton, the department head and associate professor of criminal justice. So, uh, Shall I call you Dr. Bolton? Um, how about you just introduce yourself and like how you came to be at Southeastern? Yeah, well, and like you said, my name is Ken Bolton. I, I kind of, uh, I went to the University of Florida for my PhD. And at the University of Florida, I worked with uh, Dr. Joe Fagan in terms of race and ethnicity. I worked with Dr. Ronald Akers and uh, Michael Radlett in terms of criminology, uh, specifically uh, social learning theory and with Dr. Radlett on the death penalty. And so when I went into the job market at that particular period of time, sociology, sociologists who did race and criminology were fairly marketable. And so I applied, I had a, a variety of job offers, you know, really kind of interesting places around the country, but I decided to come to Southeastern Louisiana University. It was kind of like, you know, I wanted to be in the South. I wanted to be with more diverse types of environments of people. And, uh, and it was also, you know, quite frankly, a place that seemed like they needed, you know, help. And so I have kind of like a Peace Corps mentality. You know, I've served in Africa for four years with the Peace Corps. And so it just kind of seemed natural to me to come to a place where, you know, people were ready to engage and, and really needed, you know, some help. So. Awesome. So you, you and I have talked in the past about sort of your history, and it's a fascinating to, to me history. Um, you'd mentioned being in the Peace Corps. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about sort of your career history? Because a lot of professors that we meet, not that it's wrong or bad, but kind of went from high school to college to the college classroom. And, and your history is much more diverse than that. So you have all this real world experience that you bring to the classroom with you. Yeah, well, I grew up uh, in a very working class family. You know, my, my dad's people were coal miners. My mom's people were tobacco sharecroppers and cotton mill workers. So my sister and I are the first ones in our family to ever go to college. So I'm first generation. First gen. yeah. My mother really pushed us to go to college. My dad was a union electrician. So as I was a young man, I spent a lot of time in the union hall, spent a lot of time you know, doing picket lines and you know, learning you know, how to be a good union uh, family member. And so when I went to college, I began to internship with uh, a homeless shelter in Washington, DC. I worked with a group called Community for Creative Nonviolence. It was headed by an activist named Mitch Schneider. And so I worked with them uh, as an intern, and then I continued to volunteer with them for about three or four years during the really the big height of the, the homelessness struggle in the United States. We operated the largest shelter in the country at that time, at Second and D in Washington, D.C. And it was just an incredible learning experience to be there on a, on a nightly basis and just you know, understand the, the social changes that were driving people into immiseration. And so it got to be a little bit too much after a period of time. And so I was able to find an avenue of escape. So I joined the Peace Corps and I went to, to Senegal. And so when I returned from Senegal, I began to work with uh, migrant farm workers. And so I traveled up and down the East Coast, primarily with uh, Haitian people. I worked in Maryland, Delaware, Fort Pierce, Florida, and then later on in North Carolina. And at that point, I decided to return for a master's degree. 
And once I received my master's degree, I had an opportunity to study at the University of Havana in a program called FLASCO. So I spent a semester at the University of Havana and they convinced me that I should get a PhD. And so when I came back to the United States, I entered the University of Florida. So lots of uh, diversity there. You and I share something in common I don't think I had uh, known before is that my dad was also a union electrician when I was growing yeah. up. What was the union? Was it UE or was it IBEW? IBEW. Yeah, that's my father as well. My dad was IBEW. Yep. So, so we, we do have something in common. Yeah. That's he nice. farmed at uh, night and weekends and was a union electrician during the day. So. Yeah, my grandfather farmed. You know, my grandfather had Black Angus cattle. He, he escaped from the mines and he would go around the country. He became a concrete master. So he would work on tunnels and bridges and, you know, nuclear power plants, ICBM plants in Greenland. So my grandfather was a, a traveled, you know, uh, worker. And then he would invest his money in recouping family property and develop his family farm. And then when my dad grew up, he didn't want to be part of the farm. And so he went to trade school and became a union electrician, joined IBEW. Interesting. Yeah, it was a really good experience. So hello, uh, brother and sister. So, yeah. yeah. I have no cool. idea. So, so um, how long have you been at Southeastern? I, I first came to Southeastern in August of 1998. So a few minutes. Yeah, so it's been a few minutes. Yeah, it's been a few minutes. Yeah. How long have you been um, the head of the department? I, I think I became department chair in 2006, I believe. Okay kind of by accident. It was not something that I sought. It was just something that was kind of thrust upon me. But uh, yeah, I've enjoyed the positions. So, um, sorry, I'm doing the math in my head and I'm not very good at it. 18 yeah. years? No, I think it's closer to 14 years. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, no, that's four, 10, yeah, 16 years, something 16 like that. 16 years. Yeah, time really. Seems far. like yesterday, right? No, well, yeah, the day before, the day after yesterday. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, you have shared with me in the past about the vision that you had for the department when you took over as chair and sort of how you grew the department out of this um, sort of the social justice perspective. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Well, I think that, you know, in terms of, of my history, I never really wanted to end up in academia. It just kind of happened. It was the road that I traveled and the place that I ended up. But I've always been interested in this particular type of vision of what the world should be. You know, I think from my union origins and then later on working with homeless people and living in Africa. I've been involved in a lot of other organizing types of endeavors, you know, that are just kind of, you know, numerous and too few to mention for now. But I've, I've been kind of uh, active in social justice movements for quite some time. And so it just seemed natural to me that when I came into academia, I would approach academia uh, in terms of a more of a labor type of perspective, right? So, you know, I don't really look at professors as somehow being kind of like this elite academic labor. I look at you know, professors as being labor, you know, open to the same type of concerns as labor of other places, you know, intellectual labor perhaps, but at the same time, there's a tendency to treat us as labor. And so I became very interested in notions of justice within the place that I worked. A lot of professors that I work with seem to feel that they're kind of, you know, insulated by academia or the sociological endeavor. And so they do their work in-house, you know, in terms of what's required of them, but then their research and all their social justice efforts point elsewhere, right? So you would see professors saying, oh, we need to have, you know, some type of event to support people someplace else or support some type of demonstration someplace else. Well, so my approach was always that, you know, we're in a struggle ourselves. 
And so it's okay for sociologists to help people in other locations or to do research in other locations, but we really kind of need to take care of where we're at. We need to kind of like refocus our and understand where we are relative to the changing, you know, economic system, the changing market, and be prepared to to really fight back for our own survival. Particularly, I think as sociologists, and I think the last ten or fifteen years has kind of really borne that out with sociology programs being shuttered, you know, throughout the country. Right. So, so to me, in terms of it's not just to be a sociologist to help people somewhere else. It's also to be a sociologist to really uh, work within the university to organize the university and organize the department in terms of what my vision of the future would be. Mm -hmm. So what kind of changes have we seen over the last decade or so um, within our department at Southeastern and maybe then broader Southeastern as a whole? Well, I, I think if you look at the larger landscape, there's a variety of factors which really will, are shaping academia going forward. I think one of the the initial things that we encountered was you know, neoliberalism, right? You know, turning the university into a side of profit, to a side of revenue. You know, actively making students very passive consumers of you know education as some type of object that they would purchase, rather than really focusing on developing the critical and intellectual ability of students to become full citizens. And so the whole idea that students come to university just for a job. Right. The whole idea that you know, university professors and university workers are just merely workers and that we don't have the ability to be to go beyond that. <clears throat> so I think that neoliberalism radically transformed you know, education is in the process of radically transforming education in order to exact profit, to silence people who are uh, more progressive, for example, to turn students into passive recipients of educational material as consumption rather than as critical, analytical, reflective type of process to develop and become a human being. <clears throat> so that's continuing to grow. I think every year uh, academic departments have less freedom. I think every year professors have less freedom. I think every year we see more and more adjuncts. We see more and more instructors. It's it's much harder to get a very good job. It's much harder to get published these days, for example. So the, the pressures, I think, from you know what I refer to as neoliberalization are one of the initial types of factors that education began to encounter, sociology specifically. I think another factor is the rise of automation as well. The increasing growth of machine learning programs and AI programs really put academia at risk, and I really think that it will continue to marginalize professors. It really transforms how the university operates, particularly if the university is really neoliberalized and becomes a profit, you know, focused entity. Then they began to have more and more contracts with publishing companies, outside contractors, et cetera, et cetera. And then you began to reduce the relative authority and power of academia to actually create material which challenges students to become active learners and active citizens. So I think between neoliberal policies, and I think the two are, are dynamically interrelated, for example, in neoliberalization and the emergence of new technologies within academia are both kind of geared for making profit for a certain sector of society and really disadvantages people like myself and like you who work in academia. And I think it really disadvantages students as well. They have to pay much more they get far more pressure to get a job. 
they're incredibly stressed out, for example. And a lot of people become really kind of confused about what education is actually here to do. You know, is it here just for me to get a job one day? That's the very first question I ask my intro students at the beginning of the semester. <clears throat> I start to introduce the class and then we veer off into a, I ask, you know, why are you here? Why are you here in my classroom? And, you know, the majority of students in intro to sociology are not sociology majors. No. Um, you know, I have a variety of major seeking students. And uh, primarily the general answer is, well, I've got to do this to get a job. I want a better paying job. And so we have we do have a conversation about you know um, what happened to the learning part like why why aren't we here to learn and and there is a lot of you know much more value in that than just checking off your box and and you know moving on to your to your so, job. No, I think you know, the the institution of education, university level education uh, specifically, has always been just full of problems. You're just really full of problems that disadvantage particular groups. It's always been full of problems in terms of the ideological content. I think education has always been embedded in political power and authority types of struggles. And so I began to look at education some time ago as kind of, I think um, Henry Giraud referred to it as contested terrain. And I, I really, you know, kind of, you know, understand that. So I think there's still space within the university to do really good critical analytical work, to really work with students and work with other professors to actually make people much more aware, much more active citizens, much more active people who transform and shape our future, for example. But I think there's the, the prevailing tendencies from outside forces and from university administrators is to really turn it into much more of an efficient, it's almost like the, I don't really like the theory very much, but the McDonaldization of society theory by, by Richard. Right. I think some people refer to education as being McDonaldized. And so, you know, I can kind of see that in terms of becoming hyper-efficient to extract a certain amount of profit. Right. Right. Rather than being so much concerned about what's the future of our, 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 our students, what's the future of our society? You know, how can we be assured that those people that we work with in these the young age that they're in, grow up to be very uh, active you know, citizens within our society who have analytical and critical abilities to like transform was, rather than just get a job. Right. Um, it, it concerns me that we are not raising critical thinkers through the, pro, you know, through the whole process. Um, well, I think we're actively destroying critical thought. You know, I think, you know, so many of the things that we're doing are just so in terms of you know efficiency predictability control like the mcdonaldization mm -hmm. theory right and and what they're really doing is they're driving down or eliminating spaces in which critical thought actually occurs yep what's your um, favorite course to teach and why um, like, or do you have a favorite no i'm not i mean i like i think i, I like to teach right so you know yeah. I've, I've i've been uh, i've taught sociological theory for quite some time i've taught race and ethnic relations for quite some time. I teach criminological theory for quite some time. So I enjoy all of those classes. I, I pretty much like any time that I'm in the classroom and I have material in front of me, I like to engage the students. And so I just enjoy. I think one of the reasons that I'm still at the university is not because I'm an associate professor or I'm a department chair, but it's because you know, I just really, really you know, enjoy being in the classroom. Now, right. whether students enjoy it or not, that's another thing. 
but yeah. No. I would say that they do. I hear a lot of feedback. No, I just I really enjoy the interaction, the back and forth. You know, looking at people wake up, asking you know questions for the first time. You know, I, I really, I, I really kind of dig that. I mean, if it weren't for having to, the opportunity to work with such young students and bright minds, yeah, I would have been out of here a long time ago. I think. Yeah, that is definitely the exciting part of it, isn't it? The, yeah. That engagement with the students and the. Um, even though I'm an introvert, that gives me energy. So working with students and watching them like work through the process, critically analyze and start questioning and thinking about yeah. the material and the world around them. Yeah. And I've been, yeah, I've been here so long too that I have students who reach out to me and say, oh, remember you taught me in 2002 or I had your class in 2003. And uh -huh. I, of course, I don't remember them, but you know, right. I'm just way too old. You know, also we have from from our department, we've had so many students going to PhD programs that that's kind of you know exciting as well. Most of the students here are first generation students, and mm -hmm. to be able to work with a first generation student as an undergraduate, help them develop, help them understand uh, who they are and what they're capable of, and then see them achieve a PhD and get a job in a tenure tenure track, it's just really you know rewarding. Right. Right. So we see a lot of students go through that are um, social majors and criminal justice majors. But then also we're really trying to build um, bigger our um, master's program. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the master's program and how we're seeing that grow. Well, you know, I'm not really sure if it is growing. So, I mean, it, it kind of I think what it does is that to me, the growth is fine to a particular point. Because if you look at the amount of you know of faculty that we have, we can only uh, support so many students, right? Right. And do it correctly. So our program doesn't need to be huge. You know, our program needs to have a fairly workable number, where we have enough faculty who can able to really work intimately with students and guide the students along. You know, to me, one of the biggest frustrations recently is just a lack of funding, you know, not being able to to. The, the inability to advertise, the inability to create GA positions, for example, the inability to support students. You know, students have a lot of financial need. Yes. Right? Another problem, I think, is that because so many students are trained almost from kindergarten to pick a job, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up, you know? And I mean, I, I see students who are coming here as freshmen, and that's all they're thinking about. I'll get right. a PhD one day. I didn't decide to get a PhD until I was almost 50, you know, I mean, that's 40 or something like that. Same here. <laughs> yeah, so to see someone who's like 18 years old saying, I'm going to get a PhD one day, it's just, it's kind of odd to me because there's so much, you know, they have so much road to travel, so many experiences to gather, so many things to do, so many people to meet, to kind of force them into saying, this is what I'm going to be one day when they're so young. It's just, right. I think it's just very stressful. I think, you know, a lot of people just, I think that's why a lot of students have suicidal thoughts or just depression. So there's so much pressure put on them, I think. So in terms of our graduate program, what we try to do is that we try to give them an alternative. You know, you don't have to get a job right now. Right? You can develop your mind. You can develop your skill sets. You can move into agencies at a different level. You can become a visionary. You can become a leader. Right? You can be someone who does have that ability to think critically, the ability to interact with and have empathy for other people, and have the ability to transform whatever agencies you end up in. And so I think that's kind of, so it's emphasizing the qualitative aspect of education rather than the measurable quantitative outcomes in terms of an immediate job. 
it, it's kind of difficult. You know, it really is because students are so ingrained in terms of I have to get to this point and get a job. You know, from the school, from the larger society, from their families. Right. Um, I guess high school teachers and counselors as well. Right. It's uh, sort of narrowly focused the way we have students on the fast track or the. Um, definitely a very focused on the end instead of the traveling along the way. That's right. So to, to me, you know, one of the biggest problems that I've had here is, you know, some of the, the transformations that I think that need to take place are, are take place very slowly. I think sociology, criminal justice, they always kind of, there's a tendency to say, you know, what what is, you know, what's going on? How can we measure how we can describe what's going on? I think a big thing that sociology and many social sciences have lost is the idea to think about well, what should be, right? How do we conceptualize the future, right? You know, rather than just focusing on the immediate, the here and now, a lot of the sociological endeavor in terms of, you know, research methods, data analysis is just describing or explaining particular moments in time. And to me, that's incredibly frustrating, right? You know, I think that in terms of, you know, engaging students, letting them know that they are capable, active human beings that have an important role to play in transforming society, if they ask the question, what should the future look like, right? And I think it kind of goes along with more of a philosophical idea in terms of, well, who are we anyway? What are we here to do? Mm -hmm. I think at some point, philosophy has just been extracted from most sociology. And so sociologists don't have to really think about those kind of ontological issues of being. And they just move on until, well, let's describe, you know, what's the birth rate this year as compared to the birth rate last year without having any type of larger meaning or explanation behind it, for example. And so I think that if you like really began to put in more of a, a philosophical base to sociology and you began to ask those particular types of questions. If you began to ask questions about being, if you began to ask questions about, well, what is freedom? You know, what, what does agency actually entail? You know, how does human consciousness inform agency, for example, right? You know, I think if those particular types of questions were become more sociological questions rather than just measuring this through a multiple regression analysis, for example, and coming out with an R square which is just incredibly you know, boring to me, but I understand that it has its utility at some levels. Right. I, I think that's an important part of the process is to really begin to ask those particular types of questions and then tailor whatever we do in the future around those particular answers. This is who I am. This is how I can see for myself. This is what I'm capable of doing. And this is the type of world that I would like to live in, right? And then whatever agency, whatever institution, whatever university you end up in, you begin to act towards those goals, right? If you think that society should be something in the future, wherever you're at, you should be working towards that, right? Within your home life, within your work life, politically, economically, in terms of your action, your agency, for example. I think oftentimes sociologists insulate themselves at work and separate what they do in a bubble from the rest of the world, right? They may have an issue that they study, they may have a class that they teach, but are they really, really, really thinking about, well, who am I? What does it mean to be a sociologist? You know, what is my power? What is my ability? What can I do to help, you know, further the, the positive transformation of society? So you mentioned a little bit in there, you touched on the future. Where do you see the future of this department in, say, five years? Where would you like to see it um, grow, change, cut back? 
no, what vision do you have for the next five, 10 years? Yeah, that's the, yeah, I don't, yeah, I never really thought about that, I guess, you know, because I'm, I'm fairly close to retirement, so I'm five years, you know, who knows, you know, I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> might be on a beach. <laughs> yeah, no, well, yeah, maybe sometimes, but I, I think in terms of academia, I, I think the, the way that I look at academia is in terms of my position in academia is kind of how I look at life, right, so, so I think we should always ask those questions, like, who am I, what am I to do, you know, what is, what, what, what type of society would I like to live in, right? I think those are fair questions. But at the same time, I think it's kind of illusory to believe that we're in control of what takes place, right? So I think that what happens is, you know, we kind of like, we, we all kind of walk a path. And so along that path, we have opportunities. You know, we meet people that we otherwise wouldn't have met, like we met a couple of years ago, for example, and it's opened mm-hmm. up new avenues. I mean, I didn't even, I couldn't even spell podcast yesterday. So, you know, you've really <laughs> probably do that for example so i think that you know as we walk the road that we're on as we encounter other people you know as we come to the various crossroads of our lives we have to make decisions so where this department is going to be in five years i really don't know but as we walk that particular path of the next five years i'm kind of prepared to say this is what i don't want to happen this is what i would like to see happen and then i'm prepared to fight those particular battles you know, I think that there's an incredibly increasing encroachment upon academic freedom. You know, maybe not so much in the university that we work in, but I, I think it's much more of a, a holistic type of problem throughout the nation. You know, I feel that the voices of academics and the voices of scholars are being marginalized, right? To me, for example, I, you know, I worked with, with Joe Fagan for a long time. He was my major professor. You know, I learned systemic race theory from from Dr. Fagan. I learned critical race theory from other scholars that I worked with at the University of Florida. And I've been working in those areas for years. And now to see 16 states passing legislation to silence the voices of people who talk about race is kind of, you know, concerning. When I was growing up, I always thought that maybe they would throw me in jail for teaching Marx, but I can get away with that these days, you know. But if I mention critical race theory, then everyone just kind of goes, you know, apeshit. I mean, it's just, we just live in a really weird place. So in five years, I would hope that as I continue to walk towards those next five years, that I'm able to somehow fend off those particular type of people who want to silence scholars and actually make academia stronger in response, right? That's one thing. In five years, I would like the department to still be here. You know, I think sociology as an academic discipline is really being uh, challenged throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And I think there are particular pressures and particular events which could happen at a university like this, which could end the program and just turn sociology away from a degree granting program to just a supportive program, teaching 100 and 200 level classes, for example. So to me, I think that a big part of the next five years is being able to resist all the negative changes coming our way, while at the same time, you know, being able to continue to engage students and faculty members in a particularly open style, which emphasizes our humanity and emphasizes the need to treat each other with respect. Excellent. Well, I don't really have many more questions today. Is there anything else you would like to add to our conversation? Well, yeah, I, I can just close like really quickly in terms of, you know, you asked me earlier about, you know, where does the, the whole idea of social justice come from? Yes. Um, a, a lot of it comes from the idea of what's called liberation sociology, right? You know, when I was a, a master's student you know, back in the day, 
I began to look at, you know, sociology as something which needed to be transformed, right? So I think that, you know, when you work in a particular environment or you work in a particular atmosphere, you have to be very critical of what it is that you're doing. And so if education in general is in, embedded with, you know, political, you know, power and authority, then sociology is as well. So I've always been kind of interested in saying that, you know, what can sociology be one day? So back in you know the early 90s, I looked at liberation theology as kind of uh, uh, an analogy, for example. You know, there were two really important books. You know, one was the you know, liberation theology, right? Which was what is a theology which works towards liberation? And the other one was more of the liberation of theology. What is it about theology that needs to be transformed? And so back in the early 90s, I began working in the idea of, you know, how can you change the academic discipline that you work on to make it more amenable to issues of justice? And so when I when I arrived at the University of Florida several years later, you know, Dr. Fagan and Dr. Vera were both there and they continued to work on the idea of liberation sociology. And they actually published a book sometime after I left the University of Florida, which dealt with liberation sociology. I think that in terms of their book, what they really look at, which is important, is that how do you transform the research process, right? And so in my master's program, most of my work was dealing with participatory research, right? How do you turn people away from being objects being researched on to people who are involved collectively in the research process? You know, how do you democratize knowledge and knowledge producing processes, for example? You know, as part of that process, I began to read Paulo Freire and really began to get into uh, popular education, right? The whole idea of problematization, the whole idea of how do you begin to raise consciousness among, amongst a group of people with a particular discipline. And so when I left my master's program, I was committed to popular education, and I was really involved in the process of participatory research. At the University of Florida, I continued to engage in those particular areas. And, but I think that one of the big differences is when I became department chair. And one of the things that I realized is that even if we democratize pedagogy and make it much more open and much more critical, and even if we can somehow make the, uh, the research process somewhat more open and much more critical and much more collective, then the way that the university functions itself is a detriment. The way that we have power and authority within academic departments, the way that we treat each other, the way that we treat our students and the way that we act towards each other, and to me, that was something that I really wanted to change. I, I really wanted to make it much more of a very human-oriented experience. And so when people came to work, despite our differences, we treated each other with respect. We wanted to work. We enjoyed each other's company. And we felt that we had the academic freedom and the freedom to engage in our jobs the way that we wanted to without having some department head or someone in the department you know, torture you for that. And so, you know, I hope brought the whole idea of how do you democratize research? How do you engage in much more critical pedagogies? And then I began to kind of mix that with, you know, how do you administer a department and do so in a humane fashion, right? So that was really kind of important. And then I began to understand that within the university, a lot of education does not just take place and knowledge creation doesn't just take place within the classroom or just the research endeavor. So it became really important here to develop extracurricular types of activities and tie them into curricular activities. And so one of the goals were to, was to create student organizations, right? So, and then give those student organizations the space and the ability to actually engage and become leaders to learn those particular leadership styles. 
we also uh, uh, developed a process in which we began to invite speakers. We created the Social Justice Speaker Series, for example. And so we have students within the classroom, students working with professors in research endeavor, students working with extracurricular activities. And then we connect students with the larger world by having them meet with speakers. A lot of the speakers have done workshops with our students, which really works out well. You know, right. several years ago, Occupy Wall Street was here. And not only did they give a, a really, 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 really good presentation, but they also work very closely with students in terms of organizing workshops. Right? And so to me, one of the big processes when you talk about justice or you talk about liberation, it's all aspects of the job, right? It's not just, and I think in terms of working with Joe, one of the things that, that you know, Dr. Fagan's work has done has really concentrated a lot on research not a lot on pedagogy other than teaching liberation sociology itself but mm -hmm. i'm really interested in developing all pedagogies which emancipate human consciousness right so that's important so it's not so much how do we teach liberation sociology but it's how do we liberate pedagogical styles in order to make students much more active learners for example so, and so I, kind of, I try to push that amongst faculty members and so the whole process was is to not treat students as objects, but to treat students as human beings with an incredible capacity to do more if we offer them the space to do so. And so that's what social justice here really means to me. I'm not sure if that makes sense or not. Oh, it does. It does. Um, literally, we could sit here and probably talk for hours about it, but I'm not sure anyone would listen to us for hours about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it makes a now. tremendous amount of sense to me. I appreciate it, Rebecca. Yeah. So we will um, wrap up our podcast for today and um, maybe resume our talk another time. Over coffee, maybe. So. Maybe over coffee.